0: these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, if you take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter number 9, Luke 9 is where we will be continuing on our our study through the third gospel, through Luke's gospel. And uh, here at Cloverleaf, we very much value uh, the scripture and, and teaching the word going through verse by verse and just seeing what's there. It never ceases to amaze me how much Uh, is in Scripture, even in familiar passages. So Luke 9 is where we will be this morning. Hey, how many of you remember the, the good old days? Hey, anybody remember the good old days? Okay, some of you are raising your hands, the good old days. Now, some of you answered the question without knowing what the good old days are that I'm talking about. No, I'm not talking about the 1950s. Uh, I'm not talking back to a previous era where there was a different coach for Alabama or when Auburn won football games. No, I'm, I'm talking about just back to the, uh, the early 2000s. Remember that, early 2000s? Yeah, okay, I'm really young, so I actually can remember the early 2000s. I'm referring to, back to the age before there was such a thing as Netflix or Hulu. By the way, how many of you either have a Netflix account, a Hulu account, or an Amazon Prime video account? Okay, several of you, all of the young people are like, yeah, we do all that. Um, I'm talking about back in the days that when you wanted to watch a movie, you, had to, you actually had to go get a box off the shelf, and you had to either open the box and take a DVD out and stick it into the DVD player and watch it. Right? Anybody remember that ancient technology? Or if we go back even a little bit further, a VHS, right? You're like, man, you really are young. Yeah, okay, VHS, ancient technology. Um, some of you all still have VHS players, right? Uh, you can't even buy VHSs anymore for them. You know, maybe probably worth keeping those things around. I remember back as a kid when we would watch movies, before the movie would begin, there would always be previews coming soon to video and DVD. Remember that? And then you'd be, there'd be these little 90-second you know, snapshots of what was coming out soon in, in, in movies. Here's something fun to do. Go home this afternoon and find some VHS from you know, 2002 and see what the movies were they were promoting, like Pirates of the Caribbean or uh, Night of the Museum 18 or whatever the, the, the next one is coming out, or Bugs Life or Toy Story 2. Yeah. Uh, the, these movies that were, that were coming out at the time, these, these previews. Now, when I was a kid, my parents always made us fast-forward the, the previews. Uh, anyone else's parents do that? Fast-forward the previews because you, you might be watching a, a G-rated Disney movie, but there will be a preview for something that might be bad. and We, we don't, don't want to watch a 90-second preview of something that might be bad. So we Fast-forward the previews. When DVDs came out, you could just push the button, go right to the menu. Now you can watch it on Netflix without previews, right? Uh, now I know some of the streaming services will interrupt with ads now. But previews—that's what—that's kind of the idea I want to I want to take and run with this morning. In our text today, we're getting something of a preview of the Great Commission. You understand what a preview is? It's sort of just like the the whole movie kind of boiled down into ninety seconds to kind of wet your appetite, so you'll go out and buy it or watch it or whatever the case may be. Our text today in Luke chapter nine, verses one to nine, we get a preview of the Great Commission. Jesus is going to take his 12 apostles, he's going to send them out on a short-term mission trip kind of the 92nd version of what they'll spend the rest of their lives doing. A preview of the great commission. Now, what do I mean by the great commission? I mean Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the mission Jesus would eventually give the 12 apostles. To be a witness to Jesus, a witness of the resurrection to their community in in sort of ever-widening circles of influence till the entire world would hear about Jesus Christ. That's a a big mission, wouldn't you agree? Your mission, 12 disciples, is that the entire world hears about Jesus. Uh, We get the, the Great Commission recorded before Jesus ascends to heaven, and in Luke 24, he tells them, it's necessary for you guys beginning at Jerusalem to announce repentance and remission of sins through my name. We get it recorded in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. We get it recorded in Mark 16 and verse 15. Preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, So we get this repeated over and over again. It's called the Great Commission because it's so massive, it's so expansive, to go make disciples of every nation, to tell people from every nation. About Jesus and call them to repent and believe in Jesus. By the way, that is our mission as well. I think we would all understand the apostles got the ball rolling, but the ball is still rolling and it is still our ball to keep rolling, right? That that mission is passed on to us. Before Jesus went back to heaven, he says, Go make disciples and then teach them to do everything that I commanded you, which would include the command to go make disciples. So for Cloverleaf Baptist Church, you might say, I'm not one of the 12 apostles. Right, but we are disciples of Jesus, and we are given that same task of telling other people about Jesus and helping them find and follow Him. So what we're going to get here in Luke chapter 9, 1 to 9, is a preview of that. This is earlier on in the ministry of Jesus. The 12 12 apostles are not yet fully trained, and this is sort of part of their training for the Great Commission. You can think of this as sort of riding with the training wheels on before they're going to go sort of without the training wheels. This is the preview of the feature presentation that would come later on. So let's read our text, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he called or or summoned his 12 disciples, 12 apostles together, and gave them power and authority over all devils, be demons, and to cure diseases. And he sent them, literally the word apostello, we get the word apostle from them, he sends them out with a commission, to preach the kingdom of God. And to heal the sick. So, it's a twofold mission that they have here. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither stage nor scrip, that would be a, uh, a bag of some kind, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats, two tunics apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. Ah, so, you're going to go into a city, you're going to stay in a house with someone, you're going to stay in the same place, you're not going to bounce from place to place. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, literally the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is a preview of the mission that's not exactly identical to what the later mission would be. This is like the bike with the training wheels. Okay? A bike with training wheels looks a little different than a bike without training wheels. So there are some features in this commission that Jesus gives to them that are unique right, for this training. Uh, for example, telling them, don't take stuff with you for the journey. It's going to be a lightning quick, short-term mission strip. You don't need to be taking a bunch of stuff. Later on, when Paul and the apostles in Acts take longer-term mission strips, some people actually go and live in places. They move to new cities. They put down deep roots. So this is not a for all time, for all Christians of all places to take a vow of poverty. This was part of their training, okay? Uh, even the idea of healing, that was to, to confirm that the kingdom of God had broken into the world, that the message they had was from God. But nonetheless, this preview has some elements that will be in the feature presentation. It has some elements that we continue, uh, some, some commands that continue to be relevant for us. This is not just for the twelve, though it uniquely applies to them. The, the principles apply also to us. This compels you and me to be engaged in the work of making disciples. What do I mean by making disciples? Helping someone find and follow Jesus. Right? Every Christian should be engaged in helping someone else find and follow Jesus. So let's look at some of the elements that this previews. First off, we get a preview of the mission, a preview of the mission. So verse one, we see Jesus summons the twelve. Um, He's already selected them before this. We can read about that uh, several chapters before. He selects these 12 guys from the larger multitude of people who follow and believe in him. They're going to be apostles. They're going to be equipped with unique authority. Um, So he selects the 12, uh, literally is how it is rendered in the original. He called, he summoned the 12. They're going to have a unique role to play in the foundation of Christianity with the start of the church. So he summons them together. They are not yet ready for the kind of mission he has. And that's very evident as you read the Gospels. One of the things that kind of stands out is man, these guys just don't get it, right? Jesus calms a storm and they're like, who in the world is this? Uh, Later on in chapter nine, we're going to find out they're going to begin to get clearer and clearer understanding as to who Jesus is. But you know, when Jesus dies on the cross, he's buried. They're totally shocked, they don't expect the resurrection to happen. They are in the process of their training. They're not yet ready to go off into combat. They're about halfway through boot camp. That's sort of the idea here. And this is their next sort of training mission. They're learning. They are preparing. What strikes me as I read the Gospels, and this is really clear in Mark's Gospel, is sort of how thick these guys can be and yet how patient Jesus is with them. He's patient with them. He is patient with you and me as we grow. You see, the Christian life is a life of growth, Right? None of us have arrived. If you think, oh, I've arrived, there's nothing more for me to learn, you haven't, right? There's some pride that needs to be dealt with there. The Christian life is one of growth and improving and learning more and learning more of Christ. And Jesus is patient with them. So I think a good question for us to ask ourselves at this point is Am I growing in my walk with Jesus? Am I growing in my understanding of the Word? Or have I sort of reached this plateau where I think I've arrived? Uh, it takes humility, doesn't it, to recognize I'm not there yet. I've got growing to take place. It it took humility for the 12 to recognize there's still a lot for us to learn from Jesus, for us to do on this training mission. By the way, how do you respond to those who are still growing? Sometimes we get frustrated at other Christians for not being as far along in the Christian life as we are. I think it would do us good to remember, I am growing, I'm between the already and the not yet, I'm between my conversion and my glorification, and so is every other Christian in this room. Right? And so we would do better to come along and grab each other's arms and help bring them along in their growth, just like Jesus does here. So he sends these guys out on a short term trip. So, this mission, we're getting a preview of the mission in verse 1. So he, he summons them together and then he gives them power and authority. This very much echoes what we see in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. That word power means authority. So he says, Because I'm the resurrected king because I have authority and power. I'm delegating that to you. This is pretty sweet. You and I have been delegated the authority of heaven. Right? We're given the authority of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the risen creator. And he says, I've given you authority to go in my name. You ever feel like you come to you know, share the gospel with someone? There's like a coworker, And the conversations turn towards spiritual things. And you're beginning to say hey, so if you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? You're beginning to turn the conversation or to be like, hey, so what do you, you know, are you a good person or have you, do you feel like you kept God's law? Or if you were to die today, do you know for sure you would be right? Well, you're beginning to ask one of those questions. And you, I know what goes on in your mind because it goes through my mind. It goes through my heart. I'm beginning to think, man, I feel like I'm overstepping a little bit. You ever feel that? You ever feel like, well, I, I get this person needs Jesus, but maybe that's not really between, that's sort of between them and God and our, 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 see, our society has this idea today that you know, a person's relationship with God is kind of just between them and God and no, everyone else should just sort of take a, take a chill pill and step back. We sometimes think it's not my place to say something. I'm sort of out of bounds or someone else would be better equipped. Jesus, is t- by giving authority and by giving power, is saying, I'm delegating to you my authority to go do this. Okay, so it's sort of like w- when you were a kid and you have siblings. How many of you all have siblings? All right, so mom sends you out to be like, hey, go tell Billy it's time for dinner. All right, if I just go out and start telling Billy what to do, I'm like, okay, I'm just a sibling. I don't really have the right to go tell him to do things. But if mom sends me, right, hey, mom said that you need to come to dinner, we're going with that kind of mom said to, God said to repent and believe. And so we can authoritatively declare that message. That's, that's the mission. So Jesus says he empowers them. He gives them power and authority. Now, what's the difference between power and authority? Power is dunamis, the, the, the dynamic power, this, this ability to, to do something. Authority is the right to do it, right? So you might have someone who has the power to kick down doors, right? They have great power to go, doing, to go down and kick down doors. You know, if you just went around like throughout Tillman's Corner kicking people's doors in, someone would probably call the cops on you and you'd go spend some time down in their, the, the jail, right, in downtown Mobile. If, However, you are the SWAT team and there is a warrant that has been given to you to go kick doors in. Uh, The fact that you have the power to do that, it matches nicely with your right to do that. You you see the difference? Power is the ability, authority is the right to do it. Jesus is like, I'm giving you the power and the authority to kick in through the doors and bring in the kingdom of God, to bring the battering rams of truth to the gates of Satan's kingdom. He says, I'm giving you the power and authority, now specifically over all demons, over every kind of demon, and to cure diseases. Now, in the context, remember back in... Luke 8. We looked at the end of Luke 8 over the last few weeks. It's all about what? The power of Jesus. We really hit that home. Hopefully you get the idea that the point there is to prove the power of Jesus. So Jesus calms the storm, showing his power, his authority over nature. He shows up in Gadara and he kicks the demons, plural, many thousands of them, out of the demoniac of Gadara, demonstrating his authority, his power over the demonic realm. We see him at the end of the chapter healing someone with a disease, showing his sovereignty over delays, raising someone from the dead so jesus has power now he's saying guys my power is so great i'm delegating a share of that to you it's not that the apostles it's not that we as christians have the sort of inherent power in ourselves it's rather that jesus has all authority and all power so he gives us the authority to to defeat demons to cast demons out of people and then to cure to heal people of their diseases uh really a unique thing that he does for them he doesn't do this for every christian uh, What the apostles have, the the abilities the apostles had, were unique to the apostles. So Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians. He says, the deeds of an apostle were done by my hand. In other words, the apostles, the twelve, and Paul, had unique power and authority that is not given to every other Christian. That's why I think it it is profoundly wrong, theologically mistaken, misguided to say, all Christians should be able to speak in tongues, to heal, to raise the dead. We don't see all Christians being given to that. Given only to the apostles. And by the way, they were only the ones that Jesus ordained. We're not all apostles in that sense. Uh, so he, he gives them this unique mission. But the mission in verse 2 goes on to say, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. Now that part of the, the mission is for all believers, right? That is for every Christian. So here's the the preview of the mission, this divinely given mission. It's not something, a mission that they themselves cooked up. The apostles do not get together and be like, all right, guys, come into the huddle. Let's decide what we're going to do. No, Jesus spells out what the mission is. We don't come up with the mission. We simply follow the mission he has given to us. So those of you who served in the military, the the way it's supposed to work is the higher-ups come up with the mission, and then the lower-downs carry out the mission. Jesus comes up with the mission, and he says, here, carry it out, and here's all the tools, the authority that you need. There's a preview of the mission, right, that they're going to announce the kingdom, that they're going to heal and cast demons. There's the preview of the mission. By the way, we see them doing just that as well in the book of Acts. Don't forget this, that Luke and then Acts are volume one and volume two of the same story. They're both written by Dr. Luke. So what we're seeing here is a preview of things that we would see. If you were to read the book of Acts this afternoon, it would probably take you two or three hours, you would see the apostles Casting demons out a couple of times, you would see them doing, performing healings. You'd see them preaching, doing the things that Jesus previews here. This here is laying the groundwork. But now we jump into verse 2. I want you to see the preview of the message. So preview of the mission, they're going in Jesus' name with Jesus' authority in the same way you and I go in Jesus' name and Jesus' authority for Jesus' glory. But here's the message. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So, two elements there preaching and healing. Now, notice verse 6. They departed. And having gone through all the villages, they were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So, again, preaching and healing, these, the, these two parts. So, notice the content of the message. It, for, it's, it's described in verse 2 as the kingdom of God, and verse 6 as the gospel. I point that out because some people will be like, well, the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus are two different things. No, this is is the same message, the announcement that Jesus is king and the command that people need to repent because the king has arrived. It's, It's good news because the king is saying to a bunch of rebels who have rejected his rule, you can be forgiven. You can be made citizens of the kingdom even though you were traitors to the king. That's the message. The message is that you and I who are sinners that this world uh, full of rebellion against God can be made right with the king, can be citizens of the eternal kingdom of God. So verse 2, he sends them to preach. Now, that word preach, um, it's not just they went out to share. They went out to have a little conversation or go out and do surveys in the community. No, the word preach means to herald. Uh, It would would even be used, you know, the king has a proclamation that's going to be sent out and someone stands in the town square saying, hear ye, hear ye, a proclamation from the king. It it has authority behind it. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God. They're proclaiming this message that the king has come. Now, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule of God. God. Right, God is sovereign. He rules over this world. And specifically, it is His rule within the realm of redemption. So to be part of the kingdom is another way of saying you're saved. Right? It's another way of saying you've been forgiven. To be a citizen of the kingdom is to be a member of the kingdom, is to be a child of God. God's rule is broken into the world, and sinners must submit themselves to the king. Very much a message about authority. That's the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is not simply hey, you get out of hell for free and collect $200 when you pass go. No, the message of the gospel is, yes, you are forgiven, yes, you are redeemed, but guess what? Jesus is king. There's a fundamental change of who the authority is in your life from being me, from being Satan through my flesh, to being Jesus Christ through the word of God. Now, the kingdom has a present dimension. Right? Everyone who is a Christian here this morning, who's been born again, you are a citizen of the kingdom. John 3 says, if, unless you're born again, you won't be part of the kingdom. If you have been born again, then you are part of the kingdom. So the kingdom right now, in, in one sense, God exerts his rule in the lives of his people through the gospel. But isn't there also a future dimension of the kingdom? The, the Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom come. Right? There's a longing for the, the kingdom to come. One day the king will return and will bring a real literal kingdom to this world. He will rule and reign over this earth for a thousand years in the millennium and then for all eternity in heaven. So there's a present dimension, a future reality to this. This is the message that they are proclaiming. It's described in verse 6 as preaching the gospel. Now, the word preaching there is a different word than the one in verse 2. The one in verse 2 is heralding the kingdom, announcing the kingdom. The word preaching the gospel, literally one word in the Greek. Uh, We get the word evangelize from that. To announce good news. That's what gospel means. Gospel is not just like a little Christian-y word. It literally means good news. Paul unpacks this in First Corinthians 15 to say the heart of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that hasn't happened yet. This is sort of anticipation of the forgiveness that God is going to give. But later on in the book of Acts, you think about the message the apostles preach. If you read Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Paul's message in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, the heart of this good news is what Jesus has done on our behalf. Why? We're sinners. We've rebelled against God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves only through the finished work of Jesus. That's the message. And by the way, that message has not changed. That is the message of Cloverleaf Baptist Church. That's the message of every one of us that we should be announcing in this world. Now, how do you get into the kingdom? How do you respond to the gospel? Well, we actually get told about this in Luke. And so just a quick refresher, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist before Jesus comes along, verse 3, he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission Of sins. We see Jesus coming along preaching the same message in in, in Mark 1, verse 15. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, Repent and believe the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter on the day of Pentecost says, Repent and be baptized. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, Repent, turn away from your sins. Acts 5, 31, we find out that God gives repentance. Acts twenty and verse twenty-one, Paul is pronouncing repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. This message, this call that we announce to the world is not just, hey, you want to add Jesus to your life, but it is a turning away from your sin and from yourself to embracing Jesus. That's the message. Now, what about the, the healing? Okay, back in Luke 9. So both, both verse 1 mentions God, Jesus gave them authority to cure diseases. Verse 2 says he gave, they went out to heal the sick. Verse six, said they, 6 says they went out healing everywhere. You're like, what about that part? Like, why don't we have a healing service here this morning? Like, invite everybody in the church who has COVID and lay hands on them and have and, and, and God heal them. What was the point of the healing? The point of the healing was to confirm the message. So here they come along with this bold new message from God the obvious question people would have would be how do we know that you speak for God? How do we know that this message you proclaim has the authority of heaven? It's not good enough just to say, "Well, here it is." Whenever God gives new revelation in scripture, he confirms it with some kind of miracle, with some kind of a sign, right? So we get the Moses is raised up and God uses Moses to give the first 5 books of the Old Testament. Man, there are all kinds of miracles that came along with the ministry of Moses, the 10 plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven. God meeting the needs of his people, yes, but also confirming that he is speaking through Moses. In fact, there's a place where people come along to Moses and they're like, how do we know that God has really spoken through you? Why couldn't it be someone else? And God does this miracle where Aaron's rod buds, confirming that Aaron and Moses are divine spokesmen. Later on in the biblical story, we've got Elijah and Elisha and they're now beginning this age of the prophets, they're speaking and proclaiming God's truth. You read about Elijah and Elisha, there's miracles all over the place. We don't see miracles like every page of scripture, but rather when God's bringing a new revelation. In fact, this is exactly what Hebrews chapter 2 verse says. It says, after it, that is the message of God, was first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The writer of Hebrews, looking back, here he is just probably about A.D. 60, looking back over the past 30 years, says, Look, God confirmed the message through miracles. By the way, he's speaking of it in past tense as if that was beginning to come to an end. So miracles are not the the normal expectation that Christians just go around poofing, doing miracles everywhere, kind of like Gandalf with a stick. No, the, the, the idea was that miracles were given by God for a unique purpose to confirm the message, to prove that the message was from God. The message has come. We declare the message. It has been confirmed by God. Of course, the ultimate confirmation is that Jesus rose from the dead. But I think there is an application here for us. Think about what these miracles did. They didn't just go out there and be like, hey, watch me, I'm going to blow up a mountain or bring fire down from heaven and be like, oh, wow. They weren't just spectacles. These miracles actually helped people, right? Healing people who were sick, meeting real tangible physical needs. I believe the application is this for us. Just as the apostles confirmed their message by healing people, we confirm our message by helping people, right? Not through a miraculous cure, but through ordinary acts of service. Throughout church history, and you can trace this, go read a church history book, wherever the gospel has gone, compassion has gone along with it, right? Wherever churches have been started, it's just a matter of time before hospitals and orphanages were started. God's people confirm the validity of the message by demonstrating compassion to people around them. You see, one of the best confirmations that the gospel is true to the world around you is your life. Right? People probably won't be super interested in the Jesus you pro- proclaim with your lips unless they see that Jesus proclaimed through your life, right? Unless they see genuine compassion, service, caring, love, sacrifice through you for the world. Now, this is always a danger in the church is that we get these different aspects of the mission out of whack. The preaching comes first in verse 2 because it is primary. The, the confirmation... The service comes as sort of a supporting secondary role. There is a danger where those get reversed, where churches begin to say, hey, we're here just to start clinics and to hold fall festivals and to do big events in the community and to fill the the, the bellies of the hungry. Those are important things to do, but they are not the primary aspect of the mission. makes sense. They support the message. So is your life marked by showing compassion, by showing love to people around you? By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. You're the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do men light a candle uh, put it under a bushel but on a candlestick so it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see what? See your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. They see the good works, the deeds, the compassion, the kindness, the service in our lives and they're like that God that is shining through you I want. So there's the message. The message is the kingdom of God. The message is the gospel confirmed by acts of healing, con- confirmed in our lives by acts of helping. That's the, mis- the, 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 the message that we proclaim. But next, we get a preview not only of the, the mission going in Jesus' power, of the message proclaiming the kingdom, we now get this preview of the ministry or of the ministry model. How are they going to go about doing ministry? Well, verses 3 to 5, Jesus gives specific instructions, and as I mentioned, these are like the training wheels, right? These are training wheels to teach an important lesson to these guys, but they also, you take the training wheels off. There's something that is being taught that is universal here. So verse 3, he says something shocking, take nothing for the road, right? That's weird. If you were going on a mission trip, you'd be like, okay, I need to take like a really good pair of shoes, I need a change of clothes, I need, you know, something comfortable. He tells them, Go with the bare minimum. He gives them a list of five things they're not supposed to take. Five things that would be ordinary possessions for someone who's on a, on a journey. He says, "Okay, don't take staves. Okay, your your walking sticks. Uh, other gospels say don't take two of them. So he says, just you can have one, but don't take two. Don't take extra with you." Script would be that that bag it was the bag that was often used by beggars to say, "Give me money, give me food, put this stuff in the bag." It might also be like a backpack to carry a bunch of stuff with you. He's like, "Don't take a bunch of stuff, don't take bread or money, like just normal things you would take." He says, "Don't don't don't do that, and don't take two tunics, don't take two garments. Go with a shirt on your back." That's really odd, isn't it, for Jesus to give this command to them to say, "Travel light." Now, why? Verse 4: verse whatever house you enter into, there abide. In other words, they're not going to depend on their resources, but on the hospitality of those who listen. God intends for the disciples to be supplied and supported by those who listen. Now, there's a pattern there, isn't there? Uh, we find out in 1 Corinthians where Paul tells the church, those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Uh, put it differently. Uh, Churches ought to support their pastors. That's what Paul is saying there, right? Those who preach should be supported by those who listen. We get that in Galatians 6 as well. So he says, Don't haul a bunch of stuff with you, but depend on the kindness and the generosity of God's people. But the bigger point of what he's teaching in verse 3 he's deliberately sending them out with a deficiency so they would learn to depend on God. So what's this ministry going to look like? What, what should our ministries also look like? And by the way, when I say ministry, I don't mean pastors who are called pastors. I don't merely mean that I'm included in this. Every Christian is to be a minister, is to be a servant of Jesus. All of us are given the mission of declaring God's word. And all of our ministries, all of our lives should be marked by these characteristics that are unpacked in verses three to six. And the first one here is dependence. What Jesus is doing in verse three is deliberately sending them out so they would learn to depend on him. right? He's sending them out now in this training mission so they would learn that Jesus is strong enough to meet our needs. Here's why I, here's why I say we can, we can come to that conclusion. Over in Luke chapter 22, turn over there with me, Luke chapter 22, Jesus brings this event up. He brings this event up. He, he, he references this. Luke chapter 22 And this is an event that is recorded only in Luke's gospel. This is the night Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's on his way to the cross. Every, he, in just a few short days, he's going to be rising again from the dead. In just a matter of weeks, the apostles would go out to carry out the Great Commission without Jesus there. So look at verse 35. He said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? So he's asking them a question. When I sent you all out on that short-term mission trip back in Luke 9, did you lack anything? Did you go hungry? Did you run out of supplies? And they said, Nothing. In other words, he says, Okay, did you have everything you needed? And they're like, Yeah, we had everything we needed. In other words, this is the, this is the test, okay? The, 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 the lecture is in Luke 9, the test here is in Luke 22. The question is, Okay, when you went out undersupplied, did you lack? And they said, No, we, we didn't lack. Then he said unto them, verse 36, But now he that has a purse, let him take it. Likewise a scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Here's the idea. He's saying to them, Okay, you learned that I would supply your needs uh, through supernatural means. Now you can go ahead and take up the normal means of supply, knowing that that's not really what you trust in. Hey, it's like using that illustration again of training. It's like you know, your military training, drop you off in the woods without any supplies. Why? So you can learn to forage and use your trainings to to meet your needs. Here they are now on the actual mission. That's not actually how you do real missions. Real missions, you take stuff with you. But you still have the ability to do those other things if the need comes up. Jesus is teaching them in a profound way. Guys, I will supply all your needs. I will meet your needs. So back to Luke 9. Luke 9 is not a Christian's take a vow of poverty and don't own any homes. No, rather, trust God. Yes, it's good to own a home. It's good to have a car. It's good to have insurance. It's good to have support mechanisms for your missionaries. It's good to pay your pastors. It's good to do those things. It's good to have a job. It's good to take care of your health. But listen, trust God. My dependence is not on my means of supply, but is on the supplier, right? I'm going to rely on the God who has given me the mission to support me and to sustain me through it. So when we come back to Luke 9, verse 3 is a very unique setting. He's training them. He's dropping them off in the woods without any supplies to teach them, hey, here's how you're going to do this, and I'll provide for you, so to speak. It is to teach them dependence. As you and I make disciples, and I say you and I because God's calling you to do it, we rely on God's resources. We must do it in conscious dependence on God. One of the things I think is sad in American evangelicalism is It's both a blessing and a curse. There is no lack of strategies and methodologies and curriculum and resources. But listen, if we're not careful, we can begin to depend on our strategies, our resources, and our curricula to accomplish what can only be done through the Spirit of God. Right? Think, man, if we get just ideas that are good enough, then we can reach the world. If we can come up with a methodology that no one's ever tried before, if we can get super creative up here and, you know, baptize people in big vats of beer, The church literally does that. If we can have the pastor ride down the aisle on a motorcycle and come out and do a backflip off a trampoline, man, then we'll reach the world. What if instead we said we will depend on Jesus Christ and we will do the means, the methods, the message that, that he has given to us? Listen, which takes more faith? Getting super creative and drawing a big crowd or trusting God to honor his word? Say the second one. You actually have to trust God to do what he said he would do. Right and depend on His strategy, depend on His power, rather than our own. And Churches all across our land have turned into circuses because they've stopped trusting God and depending on His power and His ability and have resorted back to falling on their own. It's a tragedy. As you and I go out and tell people about Jesus, yes, learn the gospel. Come up with a strategy for how you're going to start conversations. That is, that is essential. That is important. But listen, people are not going to get saved because... You had a really refined presentation of the gospel. Some of the times God has used me the most have been the times where I felt like I failed the worst. I get up and preach a message and I'm like, man, that felt like a train wreck and just as a disaster. And people are like, pastor, that was such a blessing. <laughs> it's God's power working through us. There's times where I've come to explain the gospel and I've stumbled all over myself. And guess what? God has still given repentance and faith and saved sinners through it. Take hope from this, beloved, that we can depend on God now, what's the expression of our dependence? I would suggest to you this. One of the surest signs that you depend on God is that you will have a commitment to prayer. Right? Prayer is a language of dependence. Prayer is saying, God, I can't, you can. Some of you here, and, and you know who you are, you are quiet prayer warriors. You have, a, you have a relationship with God and you are regularly going to the throne of grace, expressing dependence to him. Nobody notices you or gives you awards or medals for that. But God accomplishes so much through prayer that we can never even begin to imagine. He may be accomplishing more through you in your quiet prayer than he may be accomplishing through me who's up here running my mouth and talking and preaching every Sunday. Don't underestimate the power of prayer, the power of dependence upon God to accomplish his will. So we're getting this model of the, of the ministry. This ministry is going to be marked by dependence, both for the 12 then and for us now. We'll take supplies, yes, but we, never need to, we must never take our eyes off the supplier. Verse 4 gives us another characteristic of this ministry, right? So we're getting this preview of the ministry. It's going to be marked by dependence. It's going to be marked, verse 4, by contentment. All right, so they're going to come into, come into town preaching the gospel, and Jesus says, if someone says, hey, you can come stay at my house tonight, he says, go there and stay in that house till you leave. In Luke 10, Jesus is going to send out 70 to preach, and he's going to tell them, don't go from house to house. In other words, don't be like, hang on, I'm going to just see if there's a nicer house for me to stay in. I'm going to see if I can get sort of a better deal than than somewhere, uh, somewhere else, sort of try to use leverage to get something better for myself. He says, no, you're going to rely on the hospitality of your listeners. You're going to live a life of contentment. Beloved, if you're after comfort and ease... I I just want a comfortable life. I want things to be as good as possible for me. You will do very little of lasting impact for the kingdom of God. Living for the kingdom of God and proclaiming the gospel is often going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to call us to a life of contentment with what God has given to us. By the way, notice also in verse 4, the apostles didn't just blow in and blow out. They actually stayed in people's homes. They established relationships with people. This is not just sort of the the gospel blimp idea where you're flying a big blimp over the city, dropping tracks everywhere. No, this is coming in and building relationships with the people you're trying to reach. Just think about how you came to faith in Jesus. Most of you here in this room came to faith in Jesus because somebody established a relationship with you. Some of you may have gotten saved listening to something on the radio or, you know, just stumbling into church one day, but more than likely, Someone built a relationship with you, a Sunday school teacher, a parent, a friend, a co-worker, and they invested in you and they shared with you and they spoke to you and you came to faith in Jesus. May we never underestimate the power of simple hospitality to advance the kingdom of God. The apostles advanced it by enjoying hospitality. We advance it by extending hospitality, by opening our homes up, by having our hearts open and building those relationships, by inviting someone to come sit with you when you eat lunch at work and being like, hey, is everything I can pray for? Getting the ball rolling, building that relationship. This ministry model is marked by dependence on God, His power, His methods, contentment in His provision, the, these relationships. But notice verse 5, and whosoever will not receive you. So you come into some town and they're like, eh, we don't believe in Jesus, we don't want you to preach. Here, when you go out of the city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. By the way, he's implying don't waste your time with people who are going to just be scoffing at the gospel. Listen, a lot of time can be wasted by trying to argue with atheists online, right? Being like, Let me try to convince the skeptic who wants nothing to do with God, and you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours chasing your tail. Uh, There are times when you step back and say, you know what? You answer a fool according to his folly, and then other times when you say, answer not a fool according to his folly, where you say, provide a good answer, but I'm not going to waste hours and hours and hours. I'm going to leave the truth out there. I'm going to leave the door open for them to come to talk to me, but I'm going to invest my time where it's going to actually count. Uh, there's an implication there. That's what Jesus did when he's in Gadara, and they say, please leave. Jesus leaves. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't overstay his welcome. But here's the sense of what we're seeing in verse 5. When you leave, shake the dust from your feet. What's the deal with that? It doesn't make a lot of sense with us. It's not something I, you know, I don't go around just shaking the dust off my foot. I would look really weird if I was up here doing that are like, I'm leaving church, shaking the dust off. The, the idea here was when a, when a Jewish person would travel outside of the Holy Land, say they take a trip to Rome. You walk around the streets of Rome, you get all the dust of Rome on your feet. You come back to the Holy Land from the unholy land. You come back to Jewish territory from Gentile territory. When they came to the border, they would shake their clothes out, shake their feet off to basically say, I don't want to bring any of that, even that contaminated dirt from that, that, that filthy place, Rome, back into the Holy Land. So that's what Jews would do when they came back from pagan cities for the, for the disciples to go to a Jewish village and then do that in front of them. Shake the dust off. They're basically saying to these Jewish people who trusted in their lineage you're no better than a bunch of idol-worshiping pagans. That's kind of in your face. This would have been an incredibly in-your-face word to these cities to say you've rejected the king, you've rejected the Messiah, you are no better off than than people who were worshiping idols in the temple of Jupiter back in the city of Rome. That is a stunning in-your-face kind of statement. Now, this doesn't mean God's done with you, you can never be saved. No, there were plenty of these people who later on, I believe, came to save in faith in Jesus. Rather, this is a very bold declaration of divine truth, a warning of judgment, and even a call to repentance. So here's what I'm saying here. You're, this ministry that Jesus, this preview He gives them, this ministry that He grants to them, it's marked, by, it's marked by that contentment in the previous verse. It's marked by dependence, and it's also marked by boldness. This is a very, this is not just a, well, you know, th- this is a, a clear statement of some hard truth. This is a witness. This is a wake-up call. One of the hallmarks of Christ-honoring ministry will be boldness. Church family, can I encourage you, let's be bold in our witness for Jesus Christ. All too often, we are timid about that which we should be bold about. We're kind of embarrassed about some of the harder doctrines of Christianity. We're sort of embarrassed about the doctrine of hell. We get kind of embarrassed about the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. We sort of want to tone it down a little bit when, we, when it's time to talk about repentance. Instead, many churches are like, well, let's talk about sort of the positive aspects and have a positive, encouraging kind of, I get that as part of the whole counsel of God at times listen, may we be bold. What this would be saying to the people who heard this is you stand in peril of divine judgment. Listen, if you are here this morning and you have not repented of your sins, of what your trust in Jesus Christ, hear me clearly. You stand in peril of God's judgment. You're no better off than someone who is worshiping a false god on the other side of the world. You're no better off than someone who is praying at a mosque to Allah, even though you sit in a church That is what this statement would be saying, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you hang over eternal doom with a single breath, holding you back from the awful wrath of God. That's what shaking the dust off would say. It's what it says to us today. It calls us to boldness. Verse 6, they departed and went out through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing. This is so beautiful, right? Jesus says, go preach and heal. And the disciples go and they do what? They preach and they heal. It's just amazing. It's simple. as it obedience. That's the other hallmark of this ministry, this, this preview of their ministry. It's going to be marked by dependence. It's going to be marked by contentment. It's going to be marked by boldness. And it's going to be marked by obedience. Now, as they do this, there's not an arrogance about this. Sometimes we can confuse boldness and obedience with arrogance. God told me to preach, so I'm just going to get up in people's faces and tell them, you're a sinner, and you're going to go to hell. And you come across very arrogant and harsh. This is not arrogance and harshness. There is a difference, isn't there, between, confident, between having confidence in God's truth and his message and being really just confident in yourself. Christians who are confident in themselves are going to come across to the world as a bunch of jerks, right? Uh, when you're getting persecuted for being a jerk, don't pretend that you're being persecuted because of Jesus. Uh, there's, a, there's a big difference, right? Oh, I'm being persecuted. Like, well, no, you were really offensive, actually, unnecessarily. Uh, but this obedience carried out in a spirit of humility... So they went out. That means there's initiative. By the way, they're going out on their own, two by two. Uh, but they're not going with Jesus. They're going out and doing what he said. I love how simple this is because you realize there's 10,000 things that we as Christians, as a church, could be doing. But the simple things, the main things, the plain things are what we should be about. There's, there's very much a reason why we aim for a very simple worship service on Sunday mornings. Like, this is very, probably very different than what you would have in a lot of churches. It's very stripped down to where, hey, Ryan gives announcements, there's a call to worship from Scripture, we sing, we pray, uh, more than one time, we read some Scripture, I preach a really long sermon, we're going to sing a closing hymn in a few minutes, and then there will be a benediction from Scripture. You're like, there's a lot of Bible and praying and singing and standing and sitting down, like, there's not a lot of entertainment. But why? Because these are the things Jesus has commanded us to do. And it's always a danger to do things that he hasn't commanded us to do at the expense of the things that he has. But on a practical level here, they obeyed. Here's a question for you. What's your obedience looking like in this area? How many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but how many of you in the last year, okay, 12 months, back to July of 2020, sometime in the last year, spoke the gospel to someone, right? Right? When was the last time that you told someone about Jesus? When was the last time you told them about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and you urged them to believe in Jesus? Has that happened in the last 12 months? Has that happened ever? You you could be a Christian for many, many years and never actually tell someone about Jesus. Let me say this very clearly if that's the case, you are living in sin. Jesus commands us, He calls every one of us. You say, Well, I'm a shy personality. You're almost trying to blame God who gave you your personality, right? Moses is like, oh, God, I can't speak. And God's like, careful, Moses, who gave you that mouth? God's the one who gives us our personalities, who gives us our abilities. Let's not blame God for our disobedience. So I'm not saying that you have to go out and win 10 people to Jesus every day, but I am saying that it should be the normal part of the Christian life for you to be having conversations with people and taking opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Jesus. Now, those of you who are, you, you say, okay, I'm not good at this. I'm not great at this. Praise God. God honors small steps of obedience. These guys didn't exactly go out and turn the world upside down at this level in their mission. It's not like revival broke out everywhere, but they were obedient, right? They were obedient to what Jesus gave them to do, and Jesus commends them for that. So let me just encourage you to Be obedient. So we're getting a preview of the the mission. They have the power of Jesus. of The message, go out and tell people to repent and believe because the king has arrived. A preview of the the ministry, the model that is is their model. It's our model, one marked by dependence, marked by contentment, marked by boldness, marked by obedience. But finally, I want you to see a preview of the misunderstandings. Um, Here's the thing that's amazing. They go out and they do what Jesus tells them to to, to do, and everybody misunderstands. (laughs) It's not like there's success, just rampant. Look at verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and others that Elijah had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he was desiring to see him. This is placed right after verses 1 to 6, because the implication is word about Jesus began to spread. People began talking as the disciples went out and talked about Jesus and his miracles and, his, and, and the message that he's proclaiming and that he's the king who's come and no doubt recounting some of the things they'd seen Jesus do and some of the things they'd heard Jesus say. Rumor begins to spread like wildfire across the countryside, making all the way to, to, to the, the, the palace of Herod. You know, he's called a Tetrarch. He's not really a king. He's a wannabe king. He's a puppet ruler, if you will. Uh, he's obviously a really bad dude. He beheads John the Baptizer simply because doesn't like John the Baptist's message, and then he gets sort of hoodwinked into to, to killing him by uh, some people who, he, who he's trying to please. Um, but we get this preview of the misunderstandings. By the way, these responses very much mirror the first three soils in the parable of the sower. Remember, one of them is sort of that hard-hearted rejection of being like the birds of the air come and eat down the seed It takes no root, that rejection. You've got the the other one with the weeds that come up that choke the word. You've got the one that's the stony ground that that doesn't last. Herod actually displays three of the four negative responses. There's only one saving response, and that is faith and trust in Jesus. Herod displays none of them. They're simply misunderstanding. So notice the the first misunderstanding here is just straight-up confusion. And Herod's not alone in this. Uh, word is coming to him. Reports are trickling into the palace that, notice these, these three views about who Jesus is, that he's John, that he's Elijah, that he's one of the prophets. Okay, there's all of these confused responses, these confused reports that are coming back to Herod about Jesus. These were the popular interpretations in Jesus' day as to who he was. By the way, just because a lot of people believe something about Jesus does not make it True. A lot of people are like, oh, Jesus is this, or Jesus is that, or he's a gentleman, or Jesus, our authority as to who Jesus is is scripture, not Gallup polls, right? Uh, so these, these, these views here are inaccurate. They are inadequate. Now, was Jesus a prophet? Yes, he spoke God's truth. But was he just a prophet? No, he was the son of God. By the way, most religions today are willing to acknowledge that Jesus was a great moral religious teacher. Uh, in Islam, Jesus is regarded as the greatest prophet just behind Muhammad, right? If you, in, in Hinduism, Jesus is regarded as sort of one of the great teachers of the, the world, and same in Buddhism. But he's not regarded as God in the flesh. So These are inadequate responses. These are confused responses. In fact, our text, look at verse 7. It says, he was perplexed. He was confused. And the imperfect tense. This was the state that he was in. It wasn't just, he thought about it one time, but he is thoroughly confused. Every night he lays his head on the pillow being like, what's going on here with Jesus? Waking up, confusion. See, Herod and the people of Galilee, they wanted a Messiah in their own making. They they wanted a great political leader. They wanted a Messiah who would do cool things for them. They didn't want a Messiah who would just die for their sins. The same is true today. People are looking for a Jesus of their own making. They want Jesus the the macho man. Ah, yeah, Jesus the macho man. They want Jesus the culture warrior who will help them take on cancel culture. They want Jesus the self-help guru who will help you live your best life now. Others want Jesus as a socialist revolutionary who's there for the oppressed and the downtrodden of society Others want Jesus, my buddy, who will just kind of hang out and drink Bud Lights with me. Others just want Jesus as my helper to kind of come through my life when things are going poorly. Listen, the only Jesus that will save is the Jesus who is Lord and who is the Messiah and who is the Savior of the world who died and was buried and rose again. Later on in this chapter, verses 18 to 20, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they repeat these three common notions. Some people say you're John. Some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets. So these were very common assumptions about who Jesus was. But then he asks them this, but whom say ye that I am? Listen, these are three inadequate responses about Jesus. The only one that's right is the one Peter gives. You're the Christ of God. The other gospels, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, the Jesus who's not just a good man, but Jesus who's the savior of the world. So this misunderstanding is confusion, but notice where it comes from. Back in verse 9, Herod said, John, have I beheaded, but who is this? Obviously, Herod's dealing with some real guilt. He's got a major guilt complex here. I mean, none of us would think that if someone came along like, ah, I bet you that's someone who's been reincarnated, who's coming back to haunt me. You'd only say that if you feel really guilty. He's like that, that one character in Macbeth, right? Macbeth's wife, who's going around with the blood on her hands at night, just consumed with guilt and giving into delusions. So here's another misunderstanding. This is sort of conviction. Okay, There's confusion. I have no idea who this is. But this is sort of this quasi-guilt sort of confusion, but not one that brings him to repentance. Jesus's actions give Herod the idea that Jesus might just be a resuscitated John, it's enough to startle him, but not enough to change him. People feel bad about stuff, don't they? Feel guilty about stuff. Oh, man, I feel bad. But not enough to say, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. An inadequate response. And another misunderstanding here is simple curiosity. Notice the end of verse 9. He was desiring to see him. By the time you get to Luke 23 and verse 8, Herod would have that wish fulfilled. At the trial of Jesus, Herod's in town. He says, I really want to see him do a trick, do a miracle. But this is not, I want to see Jesus because I want to bow to him as Lord. I just want Jesus to come and entertain me. This is curiosity. Listen, kind of conviction, curiosity, confusion, none of those will save. Those are misunderstandings. The only response is the one that the disciples give, that you're the Christ, the son of the living God, you're the master, you're the ruler, and I trust you. For us, beloved, as we go out in the mission that Jesus gave the apostles, hey, we've got the same commission. We've got the power of Jesus say, go, go preach. We've got the same message, call people to repent, confirmed through not miracles but through, through acts of kindness, of service, compassion that we do. We have a same basic ministry model of depending on him, being content with what he gives to us, being bold, being obedient. And we can expect many of the same misunderstandings. Listen, being a Christian and telling people about Jesus, this is not about how to win friends and influence people. This is not about increasing your social standing in the community. This is not about getting people at work to like you more. This is about bringing glory to Jesus Christ, even though you will be misunderstood. You will be misinterpreted. You will be misrepresented. By God's grace, there will be those who do repent and believe. I don't want to give you a doom and gloom idea. God, through his great power, uses people, ordinary people like you and me, to expand his kingdom one conversation, one conversion, one soul at a time. This is the preview, right? This is the the quick little 90-second snapshot of the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. See what that looks like. In the feature presentation, each one of us have a role to play. But let's not get the idea that we're going to be the main actor. We're we're simply the supporting people kind of in the background. Jesus is going to be the main actor as we support in a myriad of roles that all point to him. Father, would you please help us to be faithful in the mission that you have given to us?